Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love poured out for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you for his saving death and his glorious resurrection and the confidence that he now reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, do be seated. Well, as it came out in the interviews, uh, the words of Sarah and also of Andrew, uh, our group, our connect group, studied the book of Revelation late last year. Uh, and I was really encouraged by that, as it seems they were too. And so uh, the last couple of sermons, I thought, I don't want to keep that to ourselves, but to share that with you. And so uh, for my final service, we're looking at the book of Revelation and chapter 5. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'm a bit of a news addict. I like to know what's happening in the world. I've got various news apps on my phone. I like to watch the, uh, the news and to get the balanced view. Do you know if you're up at 6.30 on a Sunday morning, uh, you can get Deutsche Welle news, so English news from a German perspective, uh, as well as then backs into Al Jazeera news and get it from a Middle Eastern perspective. Uh, that might not be of interest to you, but it is to me because I like to know what's happening in the world and to understand what the forces at work behind that. But if you really want to know what's happening in the world, if you really want to know the true forces behind it, there's no better place you can go than Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. That might not be immediately apparent, but hopefully it will be in a few minutes' time. So if you've closed that up, there's uh, lots happening in this scene. Uh, so do open it up. It's in, on page 1240 uh, in the, the Brown Bibles, which I think most of you have, page 1240. Now we need to bear in mind when we look at the book of Revelation uh, and books like it in the Bible that John... Uh, who's reporting the vision that he sees, he's not just the BBC foreign correspondent reporting from heaven. It's a whole different genre of news. It's not documentary, uh, but it's more like uh, visual poetry, images that are laid one upon the other to build up this whole picture of who God is, what he's doing and what he's done, and why that matters. So as we come to a passage like this, uh, I don't think it's intended to, uh, to indicate to us that when we meet Jesus face to face, we'll see him as a lamb or that we'll see God physically sitting on a throne. This is imagery designed to tell us something about who God is. Now this little scene begins back in chapter 4 when John is given a new vision and through chapter 4, uh, and the thing about the Bible is chapter 4, uh, in most books of the Bible, normally precedes chapter 5, right? Um, that's just a thing. Um, chapter 4, uh, you get this picture of all of heaven and, in fact, all these, all these things that, that seem to represent the people of God, but also all his created order, worshipping God, sitting on the throne, worshipping him as creator, and so uh, chapter 4 ends with these great words. 
You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Praise for the God who sits on the throne. It's very striking that the very first thing that John sees as he's given this vision of heaven is a throne representing God's power and majesty and control. But amongst all of this praise and worship of God, there seems to be some sadness. Sadness that there's a scroll that can't be opened. You see, chapter 5 begins, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. A scroll, a closed book in God's right hand. A closed book that we can't see into. We don't know exactly what it contains. But it seems to indicate that it's completely filled, writing on either side. Completely filled. But completely inaccessible. Seven seals keeping it shut. Now, in in literature like uh, Revelation, the number seven has particular significance. Like the seven days of creation, the seven days of the week, or sailing the seven seas, seven has a sense of completion or perfection. Like serving at St. Stephen's for seven years. (laughs) You decide whether it's completion or perfection. But this scroll is completely sealed up. Presumably it has the writing and wisdom of God. It's God's scroll. Presumably it has the purposes of God. But it's a completely closed book. God's wisdom, God's plan and the destiny of the world shut up and inaccessible. That's why John weeps. He weeps because there's this strong sense in heaven, this uncertainty, that there is no one able to open this book. The unsealing of this book would lead to the completion of God's purposes, the revelation of his will. And the one who unseals it would be the agent of that. But there was no one found who is worthy. So the hopes of justice and restoration and rescue, redemption, the hopes for all that God has made, the hopes for everyone who's felt the brokenness of living in a world that's marred by sin and sadness and death, of broken families and broken hearts and the ravages of natural disasters. Oh, unless this book of God, this scroll can be opened, then the blessings of a renewed heaven and earth will not be realised or known. But who is worthy to open it? What is the hope for all of creation? 
Well, John is reassured. Verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This is the language of the Messiah, God's promised king, who would reign forever. The lion of the tribe of Judah, as, uh, as Jacob uh, was nearing the end of his death, uh, as he spoke to each of his 12 sons, he said that it was Judah and Judah's line that would continue to reign. And then David, who was from the tribe of Judah, was God's appointed king, the one who not only defeated Goliath, but with God, uh, ruled over all of his people. The one to whom God promised a descendant who would be king forever. So this is the hope of the world, the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. His victory is already achieved. Good news. The hope of the world has come. Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. John's reassured that a lion has triumphed, but instead of a lion, he sees a lamb, a young sheep. Not the fiercest of creatures. Uh, not many nations, plenty of nations use images like lions. Plenty of uh, medieval knights would have had lions or eagles or dragons on their shield. No one a little lamb. Doesn't strike fear into the enemy quite and what's more this pathetic lamb has been mortally wounded and yet lives a lamb looking as if he had been slain it's a great contrast to the image of the lion of the tribe of judah and yet the lion and the lamb are one it is the lamb as the lamb, the lion as the lamb, who proceeds to the throne. The lamb that John sees is standing at the centre of the throne, given a position of uh, power and authority, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And whilst this image of the lamb is one of weakness, it immediately goes on to talk of his power, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The, the idea of a horn was a symbol of ruling power. So for the lamb to have seven horns, and don't get caught up trying to patch this together as a, uh, as a coherent image, right? Just get what each of these things does. That would be weird, right? But it's got seven horns uh, reflecting complete and perfect power. Seven eyes, seeing is related to knowing. This represents the wisdom, the, the uh, all-knowingness of the, the Lamb. And we're told that the, the eyes also represent the seven spirits or the perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit that God has sent out into all the earth. So here we have a Lamb that has been slain, and yet with all this power and knowledge given to it. 
It's clear who this lamb represents, right? The one who died but has, is alive? Jesus, of course. Jesus, the one of whom John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but is now alive with power and authority. So the Lamb is the human descendant of David from the tribe of Judah, the descendant of David, but he also has the power of the Spirit and the knowledge of God. And it is the lion, not as a lion, but as a lamb, who takes the scroll, a mortally wounded lamb. So why is this lion, this lamb, worthy to take the scroll? What makes him able to do it? Well, look at the song that is sung as soon as, uh, as, soon as he takes it. From verse 9, they sing a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nations and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. It is as the lamb who has been slain that he is worthy to open the scroll to reveal the mind of God, the destiny of God, to be the agent through which God's plans for the world are worked out. It is as the Lamb of God who has died for his people that he has rescued people, ransomed them, paid the price with his blood so that people from every tribe and language and people and nation have become God's people in God's kingdom. And priests who serve him by their prayers that are precious in heaven and exercising his reign on the earth. The death of the Lamb has brought real freedom and new status to people of every nation, all who seek its benefits, all who come to the Lamb. It doesn't say all people from every tribe and nation and language. But there are representatives from each who have become God's people, part of his kingdom and the privilege of serving him. We have in this image of the mortally wounded lamb a very indication of the nature of God that God shows his power through weakness, that his victory comes through death. I think it says something very powerful to us, that the all-conquering lion still appears as a mortally wounded lamb on the throne of God. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that at the very heart of God is a symbol of his sacrificial love for us. The very thing that God wants to show us about how he exercises his rule is that Christ, who died for us, reigns. That Christ, who died for us, rescued us by his death. 
That at the very centre of the universe is a God who loves us so much that he would die for us. I don't know what your common view of God is. You ask people around, some people think of God as distant and uncaring. Some people think of God as angry and judgmental. But the image that God gives us here is that at the very heart of the universe is a God who would die for us, who loves us that much. Isn't that special? I think so. But that's not where this scene ends, is it? Not only do we see the lamb on the throne, but we see the people's response to it. These songs of praise in ever-increasing circles. I don't know, did, did anyone get to go to any of the events at the Sydney 2000 Olympics? I, I, was, uh, I was involved there uh, in a work capacity, but, um, but Sarah and I also got to go to the uh, aquatic centre to the swimming. I think it was the first night of competition, or certainly the first night... Uh, where um, medals were being awarded. And I think we'd already seen Ian Thorpe win a gold medal in one of the individual events. Uh, but then it came to the men's 4 by 100 metre relay. Now, for the previous 60 years or something, uh, the Americans dominated that. It was Americans and then everyone else behind that. And the Americans have been talking themselves up again. Um, so unlike them... Uh, Apologies to those Americans here. Um, and, uh, and then this was kind of the finale event of the night. Uh, and it started off, uh, the Australians were led out by Michael Klim. Uh, and uh, he was neck and neck um, going into the first term, but then kind of half a length ahead of the American swimmer coming into the wall. And Michael Klim actually set a new world record for the individual 100 metres uh, in the first leg of the, uh, of the relay. Uh, and so then uh, going into the second leg, the Australians were slightly ahead, uh, a, uh, a lead they were able to maintain through the second leg and through the third leg. Uh, and then in the, uh, the fourth leg, the final leg, Ian Thorpe was uh, swimming against the American swimmer, somebody junior, um, anyway. Uh, Gary Hall Jr., the most um, backwards in coming forward of the Americans talking themselves up. Uh, and after they both dived in and came up, uh, the American was in front, a lead that he maintained uh, through the first length and then at the turn through halfway through the second length and then through the final 25 metres with every stroke, Ian Thorpe clawed back centimetres on his rival and ended up touching just in front. Now, can you imagine what the stadium was like at that time? Uh, home crowd, Australia had never won that event, or not, for, not in the, the living memory of anyone there. And just the way the, uh, the, that we all cheered Ian Thorpe into the wall. Uh, at the end, we were all standing and cheering, and there was just this moment of bliss as we shared this moment of celebration with everyone around us. Fantastic night. Uh, 
And that's just a picture of what John sees here. See, the people are standing around. Firstly, uh, firstly, the, the calls uh, singing the new song, You're Worthy to Take the Scroll. Uh, this is the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And, and then added to that is the chorus of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And then to that chorus is, is drowned out by every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, everywhere that was searched for someone worthy to open the scroll and nobody could be found. But now this whole chorus of creation is standing and celebrating to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The Lamb who was slain is worthy of the worship that's given only to God because he is indeed God himself. And it seems that all of creation spontaneously joins in these songs of worship. Not just celebrating what the Lamb had done as we celebrated what the Australian Relay team had done, but worshipping him, recognising him as God with all God's authority. Singing a great song. Imagine what that song would be like. Our final song to, today, a hymn, uh, Ruth Bell's here to pump it out on the organ as we sing Crown Him with Many Crowns, a hymn that will pick up many of the themes of Revelation. Uh, it seems in many cultures and certainly through the Bible, the spontaneous response of praise is singing. And what a glorious song that is. But of course, the right worship of God, this is symbolism, right? It's not just singing. The fact that the Lamb has been slain, who has ransomed people from every tribe, nation and tongue to be God's people, to be part of his kingdom and to reign with him, that great truth that he's celebrated for and worshipped for. That joyous worship of knowing that he reigns. Well, that's to be lived out in all of our life. This is a present reality as well as a future reality. A future reality that we'll realise in much greater ways than even John with his description of this vision will tell us. But if it is a joy to worship the Lamb in heaven, then that same joy can be worked out in worshipping him, in recognising his kingly authority over every aspect of our life. I, I suspect I need to be reminded of this as much as any of you. Life doesn't always seem easy, and certainly living God's way as he would have us live sometimes seems tiresome and hard work. But it is the right response to recognising that the God who loves us, who died for us, reigns over everything. Remember that joy as you struggle in the Christian life.
I think Sarah Ketzpol talked before about the benefit of Connect Group is coming together and being encouraged as we live in a world that's increasingly less Christian. Well, remember this. At the very heart of the universe, the reality behind what we all see is an all-powerful God who reigns. An all-loving God who died for us. And there is joy to be found in worshipping him. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. We're going to sing our final hymn, and as Tim said, it's the grey hymn. Crown him with many crowns. It's a great pleasure to have Ruth Bell, who will be playing on the organ. Uh, we're not having a collection here this morning, but if you'd like to give to the work here, and especially if you're a church member here at St. Stephen's, there is an opportunity to give at the back of the church afterwards. But please.